welcome to the Redeemer Rockford Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm the host and also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And uh, I, along with all of our leaders, are recovering from an awesome uh, rooted retreat that we had this last week. We took about 154 total people out to Leaf River in Ogle County and had a two-night retreat, Um, just camping out. Some of us were intense. It was pretty intense. Um, Yes, that's a dad joke. I'm a dad now, so I could officially do that. Uh, But we had a great time. And uh, I brought one of my good friends, Andrew Hardtung, out from Southern California. He attends my dad's church, and he's served in the youth ministries and the college ministries. And he's a teacher now at a private Christian school out there, and just a lover of God and His Word, and really gifted at teaching the Bible. And so we looked at the topic of holiness all weekend long. And so what you're about to hear are sermons from our Rooted Retreat delivered by Andrew. And so I hope that you're encouraged by them and that they only bolster your faith and build you up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you may behold him, love him, treasure him, and live for him. Thanks for listening. Well, guys, there's there's one thing that I really enjoy, and that is to share in, at a time of worship and to hear the voices of people worship, drowning out the things that we have in a modern world to project sound and to make the instruments sound nice, just to hear the congregation kind of overpower it. And uh, it's a rare opportunity, but if you ever get a chance to sing in the older church building that's designed for corporate singing, I have recordings on my phone that I tend to turn to, and I would say probably the highs and the lows of my life, that I listen, I'll listen to a little song, I'm like, this is, you know, a little group I was with when we were, uh, you know, in, in Philippi, or something, we visited some old church they built there, and we were singing these same songs, holy, holy, holy. And just to hear everyone's voices, those moments are the moments that definitely stick with me. And even thinking now about how do we go on the topic of holiness, to jump from the holiness of God and this, even this idea of how do we survive this God, that now we get to jump into properly the good news. How can we sing about God's holiness and our confidence before Him? Because the Son of God took pity upon us and with the Father and the Spirit made a plan in eternity past to save you. And it says that the Son, when He became a man, He knew what He was coming to do. When you read the Gospels, there's this ever-present sense that Jesus knows what His mission is. You might find a lot of times where he says it's not the hour or it's not the time or, you know, don't tell people I'm the Messiah yet because he's ever aware of the plan and it needs to go perfectly. And the Old Testament says that he set his face like flint to go to the cross. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, when he goes to the garden, it talks about him intentionally going with his disciples and it talks about him knowing that his betrayal was coming and knowing all that was going to happen to him. That Jesus understood it, and it wasn't as though him being God made that a light thing on his shoulders. He sweated drops of blood and cried and pleaded with the Father, if there be any way, but your will be done. And we can sing blessed assurance 
Because the Son did actually die. The Son of God died for you. And He had victory and He rose. And if that's true, then the story's over. The verdict's done. The judgment's been paid. There's nothing at the end by way of your life to determine whether or not you are justified. If your faith is in the Son, He already died. The price was already paid. And we can go to even where J.T. read from out of the book of Hebrews. You can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and while you're going there, I want to read you a little preface that makes Hebrews 10 some of the best news that you can possibly hear. In Leviticus chapter 16... It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Right? We remember Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire. They don't do it the exact way that God says and they die. He says, After their death, the Lord spoke to him after they drew near to the Lord and died. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat. That is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen undergarments on his body and he shall tie the linen sash for these are the holy garments. He shall tie it around his waist and wear a linen turban and the the whole chapter goes on, and it's talking about a very specific and a very important day in the Old Testament called the Day of Atonement. It is the only day in the year where one person, the high priest, is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, which is the place where God is. It's within the place that is already referred to as the Holy Place. There's a smaller section in there, and the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, is in there, and he's to go in there on one day wearing very specific clothes with the right kind of animals, that the right ceremonies have been done over those animals, and he's to go in and make sacrifices for his own personal sins and then for the sins of the people. And the first thing God says about this process is, Moses, tell Aaron that he may not come in at any time. I'm going to tell you exactly when and exactly how. And then we read Hebrews. After the Son has died, after He has been raised, after we've been told that His blood was spilt. And it says that Jesus came and He died and He did it once for all. Never to die again. No one else needs to die. He says that, therefore, in Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Mm. 
How different does that read from the old system? It wasn't that God was capricious and making it too hard. It's that Jesus actually fulfilled so much on your behalf that you can be told, you can be told that you can have confidence. You can waltz up to the throne of grace whenever you want. And we're actually commanded to have confidence when we do so because the blood that was spilt was the precious blood of Jesus. And the high priest who stands on our behalf is Jesus himself, the Son, at the right hand of the Father. So you're told not only is it not something that you need to worry about when you come to God for grace, but you're told because of your appeal being on Jesus, right? We don't go to the throne of grace and say, here's the things I brought, here's my good deeds. It's a throne of grace. He says that we go there to find mercy and grace in time of need. We go to the, the throne of grace with empty hands, with our guilt and with our shame, to who is now our Father. Right? We can go whenever we want. It's not our works that we bring anymore, but it's Christ's works that stand in between us. Right? The law said, you must follow me perfectly. And the law condemned us. Because in the, in the sinfulness of our flesh, have you ever wanted to do something just because you were told not to? If that's not evidence of sin and depravity, like a little kid, I, there's a very vivid memory I have of being really little and camping and my mom saying, don't touch the fire pit. And the, I'm instantly I'm like, well, that's got to be the greatest thing to do in the world. And she doesn't want me to. So I'm going to do it. She's holding back, you know, and I touch it. Very valuable lesson, huge blister on the end of my finger. I learned a very valuable lesson, but the Bible speaks of the law almost in those terms as the law is good. It tells us who God is. It's great, but sin perverts it. Like Paul says, I wouldn't know what it is to covet if the law never told me don't covet. But as it is, my sinful nature produced all kinds of covetousness in me. But Jesus did, it says God did what the flesh or what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh because the son died for us. And the question that you probably know the answer to, but let's think about what would we expect the answer to be? How can I grasp this gift that the Lord is offering? Would it be a small thing for the Lord to say, my son died for you. Now just do as many good things as you can possibly do and you can attain that. That'd be pretty nice. That would be pretty merciful. I'd take that deal, I think. But God doesn't even say, you must do a certain amount of things to impress me, and then, even though it's not perfect, I'll accept it. He says, by faith. You just need to trust that my son did it. Faith you can define simply in three categories. Right? You need to know it. You need to have knowledge. Right? You can't be saved if you don't know that Jesus died for your sins, but you also need to, we say, assent to it. You need to agree with it. Yes, Jesus died, and I know that, and I believe it. But then the final step is simple trust. Right? I know that Jesus died for me. I know that his death is sufficient for me, and I actually believe that. I trust in that. My faith is such that my faith is my confidence. It's my assurance. Because my faith is in Jesus who lived a perfect life. So when I say, do I know I'm going to heaven? Well, I look to Jesus. Did Jesus live perfectly? And did he die? And did he raise? And does he sit with the Father now? 
I'm going to heaven. I believe that. I know that I'm not bringing anything good to the table. I know that my deeds would hurt me at best. But we can have that confident assurance that if God went to such lengths to save us, he'll bring us to the end too. That's what I love about the book of Romans chapter 8. Flip over to Romans chapter 8. God transfers our relationship to him from one of fear to confidence. Before the same holy, perfect, wrathful God. That we can have confidence. And I love in Romans chapter 8, Romans has just gone through so many beautiful and incredible doctrines that we're saved by grace through faith, that God has saved us in spite of ourselves, that Jesus came and did what Adam could not, that the Holy Spirit has come. And Romans 8 tells us in Romans 8.1, because of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not a little condemnation, not a small amount that you deserve anyways, none. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. It says, for the spirit, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Look at this in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. I love it. The very thing that condemns us, our bodies... Jesus, the Son of God, He took on a body and He condemned sin in the flesh. He came and did what we couldn't do. And you can go on and on in the doctrine that Romans talks about, but look at what Paul says in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? How should we respond? If this is true, if it's true that the Son of God died and that all I need to do is put my trust in Him and that good news will carry me into glory... What shall I say to these things? Well, we should be saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? That was our great problem. We stood against God. Well, now God is for us in His Son. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? I think that kind of love, when you wonder, when you're in the, in the low parts of life, you're in the valleys, and you wonder what is God's disposition towards you. What does God think of me? Why is God letting me go through this? The cross is always the place you can look to say, if God did that, if he didn't spare his own son for my sake, how will he not graciously give me all things? How will he not give me what I need? He has already cost himself the greatest expense. He's already given his own life. He's not forgotten you after the fact. And I love this in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Right? It's like, who are you worried about? Whose concern are you worried about? Who that doesn't uh, honor you or respect you, 
You have been reconciled to the living God. There is no one who has authority to condemn you. Jesus already died, and Paul says, and more than that, was raised, and more than that, even now, intercedes on your behalf. Are you guys familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, the armor of God passage? Put on the armor of God. One of the things I love is that language is actually, in many ways, borrowed from the book of Isaiah, where it says that God looks on the earth, and he doesn't see any justice. And he doesn't see salvation, and it says that he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Right? He saw, he sees humanity, and in the language of Isaiah, he doesn't see anyone that can help. And so what does it say? It says, so God puts on righteousness as a breastplate, and his own arm brings him salvation. It says God does it. He looks down at our hopelessness, and he takes on the necessary armor to come and bring salvation for us. So if God already did that, is there any mistakes in your life? We have a good father. We have a father that we have blessed assurance in front of. And in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? When we talk about the holiness of God, and how does God's holiness you know, how does that change even the way we understand something like God's love? God's love is different than our love. Our love, in the words of Luther, our love finds what it deems lovely. Our love, you know, you look at something that looks beautiful. We find things in nature that we bestow our love on because of something in it. Food that we love is something about the food. God's love makes its object. God's love makes lovely what is not. So when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that love compelled his grace to redeem you. So who can separate us from that love? That love has its origin in eternity past and has a plan for eternity future your one life, your struggles, your trials, your persecutions, none of that can separate you from the love of God. And I love the things that he brings up as examples of what could separate you from the love of God. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? None of those are small things. Those are all a big deal. Most of us aren't facing swords or famine. It's not because those things are small, but in the context of the love of Christ, those are infinitely small. They have no power over you. No power to separate you from the love of Christ. Verse 36 reminds us that suffering as a believer is part of the deal. It's a quote from the Psalms. This is what happens to the people of God. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But even in that, Paul says in verse 37, no, in all these things, in the suffering, the persecution, the distress, the tribulation, nakedness, danger, sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If God died for you, that is your blessed assurance. 
That is your confidence. Did Jesus die? Yes, he did. Did he raise? Yes, he did. Do you believe that? Do you trust in the Lord Jesus? One of the things that we pray often as Christians is God, you know, Lord, your kingdom come. In the very end of the book of Revelation, three times Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And at the very end, John, the Apostle John, he says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. He repeats it. If you're not a Christian, that is not a day to look forward to. And one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, I often refer to this as the crispy part of your Bible. It's the part where the pages are still fused together because we don't read it very much. It's a little confusing. We don't know a lot about him. But there's a minor prophet by the name of Amos. And he goes to Israel at the same time that Isaiah is a prophet. And one of the things he asks them, because they're all talking about the injustice in the world, and they're all talking about how great is the day of the Lord going to be when God judges everybody. Amos says to them, who are you to desire the day of the Lord? Who are you to desire the day of the Lord? He said, that is darkness, not light. If you wish God's justice come, if the justice has not been done against your sin, it's coming for you. Right? He says, the man who wishes for the day of the Lord, who is not right before God, is like the person who runs from a lion and meets a bear. It's kind of a weird illustration, but it's saying, you think you're escaping this thing. You're like, oh, God will come and deal with my enemies. Like, but you're God's enemy. It will not be a good day for you. So I, I, I ask this question. Why can John say, amen, come Lord Jesus? Because when Amos says, who are you to desire the day of the Lord? I say, I'm in Christ. I'm good. I'm in Christ. I'm safe. As a Christian, we do long for that day. I want the Lord to come back. And I also am grateful. I know that every day that he tarries, meaning every day that he's patient, he doesn't come back. He's patient for repentance. I'm ready to be with the Lord, though. You know, I'm 25. This is a midlife crisis, right? <laughs> I'm ready to be with the Lord. I can have confidence before him, not because of the progress I've made in my Christian life, but because of the finished work of Jesus. My life is in progress. My growth is in progress. There's many sins that remain. But many will remain when I die. And the Lord Jesus lived a sinless life for me. So that I can out of love and gratitude follow him. Right? When Jesus came for us and saved us, it wasn't because of works that are done in righteousness. But because he loved us. I love that from this grid you go from fear to in front of God, to seeing God, to a position in the family, right? The Bible says that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. My little nieces, my, my sister lives in Israel, and my little nieces are between five and two, two, one, something like that. There's three of them. I don't know if that math even works out. They're all at five and under. And they all refer to their dad as Abba. It's Hebrew. So like when you hear the term Abba from a little kid, that's what you hear. They all say, Abba, Abba, Abba. It's Dad. Right? And what used to be a posture of fear and uncertainty and hoping that we did all the right things so that we can just survive in the presence of this God is Dad. Father. Like a little kid. Right? That's our posture before God. That's our 
disposition. He smiles upon us. The perfect God smiles upon you without any little doubt about, oh, well, they did do this sin. He knows that every sin has been covered. And so that means even in our posture of conviction that we ought to have and we want to have towards God, we go to a loving Father that has already given His Son. He knows your sins better than you. And if He already gave His Son, will He not also forgive you the sins that shock you? He's not shocked. He knew those sins. There's a great quote that's attributed to Martin Luther, the one who really kick-started the Reformation, and he says, when I look at myself, I can't fathom how I could be saved. But when I look to Christ, I can't fathom how I could be lost. Because the merit of Jesus. The whole Christian life exists in the shadow of the cross. You never want to get far from the cross. You never want to think the cross was the doorway in, and the rest of my life I'm just doing the disciplines. Right? We do the disciplines in light of what Jesus has done. Right? And if you're waiting for the, the perfect day of motivation, it's not going to come. Right? We're, we're still fleshly. We still have these indwelling sins. But we can rejoice that the absolute work is done. Luther says this. He says, the law scolds us. Sin screams at us. Death thunders at us. And the devil roars at us. In the midst of the clamor, the Spirit of Christ cries in our hearts, Abba, Father. And this little cry of the Spirit transcends the hubbubaloo of the law, sin, death, and the devil, and finds a hearing with God. 1 John says that when our hearts condemn us, our own hearts, God is greater than our heart. We're reminded that though our flesh, our hearts and our flesh fail, God is the strength of our heart. So when we come to a point that we're seeing these promises of the Lord, when it says that God was pleased at the work of Christ, and when Christ says it was finished, we're not allowed to say, not quite, I'm the exception. My sin's too bad. That self-righteousness will not impress God at the end. God wants all men everywhere to repent if you've never repented, if you've never cast your burdens on the Lord, if you don't look at Jesus Christ as one who is gentle and lowly and offers you to take the load off of your shoulders, then I implore you to do it. Whatever is standing in your way, give it up. Give it up in humility. Say, Lord, there's these sins that I thought I need to get rid of before I come to you. My friends, you're not going to get rid of enough sin to stand right before God. That's not what's ever going to happen. The Bible says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Come as you are to the Lord. Offer your sins to Him. There's a, a lady that passed away at our church this year, and she was pretty sick. And towards the end, we all kind of knew it was going to be a matter of weeks by the time we were going to hear that she had passed away. And our pastor went and visited her. And he was just reminding her of the gospel, and she was in such great spirits. And he said something about the Lord taking her sins. And she wasn't able to say that much at the time, but she said, he can have them. <laughs> right? Even at the end of her life, she was so aware of these sins that just cling, and she was ready to be glorified, to be with the Lord, to see him as he is. And I can't wait to... Be even like the Apostle John, when the Apostle John, and we'll close this, this, the Apostle John 
is one of those disciples that is very enamored by the love of Christ. He has a little title he likes to call himself when he writes his gospel. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I don't think he's saying, Jesus loved me the most. You know, like I, I had a special relationship with Jesus. He loved me more than the other ones. But that is definitionally what John thought of himself. I am now the disciple that Jesus loves. I'm the object of the love of Jesus. And when the Apostle John sees a revelation of Christ at the very end, the final book to be written in Revelation, and he sees Christ glorified, he falls down as though he was dead. Right? Kind of the similar thing that happens with these other examples where Isaiah falls down and, and, and Moses and Ezekiel, these people that see the Lord, but what happens in Revelation? Jesus puts his hand on him. And he says, do not fear. I'm the one who was, who is, who is to come. Right? A familiar hand. A familiar friend of comfort. And John says, come Lord Jesus. Come back. That's the confidence we can have. We, the jury is already out. Christ is innocent. Christ redeems. And he offers that freely. Tomorrow we're going to talk about what does it mean as a gift of what Christ has accomplished to have that applied by the Holy Spirit. Right? We've looked at encountering a holy God, surviving a holy God, drawing near to a holy God. And what does it look like to be indwelt by a holy God? But if tonight you don't know whether you have peace with God, my prayer for you is that you will not sleep until you know. My prayer for you is that you would talk to your leaders. But ultimately, there's a conversation to be had with the Lord. Confidence isn't a gift that only mature Christians get to have. Confidence is what God says we ought to have, not based on us, but because it's logical. If the blood of Christ was shed, he died once for all. And that blood can cover you too. Let's pray.